Good morning. Ohayou gozaimasu. Mo ichido. Good to be here with you guys uh, to worship the Lord. At this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss our elementary age children to their Sunday school class. Also dismiss those who are here for the Bible English class. We'll let them go as well. And uh, as they make their way out, will the rest of you please open up your Bible and make your way to chapter 19 of the Gospel of Luke. Um, last we covered uh, a very last week we covered a very familiar portion of Scripture in chapter 19 that de- dealt with the monumental event of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. For years and years, the saying was, "My hour has not yet come." My Time has not yet come, but all of that changed on that fateful day that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a colt. Everything about that day screamed, I am your king, I am your Messiah. From riding on a donkey to the spreading of their garments to the shouts of praise as he entered into the city, even the day itself should have pointed them to one singular fact, that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited king of the Jews, the promised Messiah from the line of David. Such a powerful display by Jesus in presenting himself as the king of the Jews. It is amazing to think that after such a miraculous display and reception by Jesus, or excuse me, of Jesus, that within the week he would be handed over and crucified by his own people. Well, in our text this morning, we're going to wrap up the rest of chapter 19 and we're going to make our way into chapter 20. Our text is going to be Luke 19, verses 45 through to chapter 20, verse 8. And the title of our study is going to be Hearing Him, okay? Hearing Him. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word? I am going to read through our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version uh, of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, no problem. Uh, Just do your best to follow along. So Luke continues his narrative of Jesus and his happenings there in Jerusalem with the following in chapter 19, verse 45. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people, excuse me, Uh, Yeah, the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray and ask God to lead us through it. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity that we have to gather here and to uh, worship you, Lord, 
to worship you, uh, not only through the songs that we sing, but now, Lord, to worship you through the study of your word. And Lord, I pray that as we have opened up our Bibles, Lord, that in like manner, our hearts and our minds would be open to all that your spirit uh, desires to speak to us today. Give us ears to hear, we pray. Give us hearts that are willing and desiring to obey, to put your word into practice, Lord, that we might hear you and all that you have to say. And so, Lord, we give you this service. We give you this time of study. We pray that your spirit would just lead and guide us, that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Now, before we get into our text, I think it's very important to reset the stage for us. There is information that we read about in the other gospel accounts that let us know that the events here at the end of chapter 19 did not immediately follow the event that we read of last week in our previous text. Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem on the first day of the week. We know this. Uh, it was a Sunday, and then immediately he went to the temple. But we were told in Mark's gospel that Jesus didn't stay too long in the temple, that he went, he entered into the temple, he looked around at all the things that were going on there in the temple, and then he departed to Bethany because the hour was already late. Mark chapter 11 Verse 11 tells us that. And so Jesus spent the entire night in Bethany, and I'm sure that he spent a good amount of time contemplating and praying about all the things he saw there in the temple and how he ought to respond. Early the next morning, Jesus and his disciples made their way back towards the city of Jerusalem and into the temple area, and that is actually where Luke picks up his account. And so take a look again at the opening verses of our text, verse 45 and 46. It says, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So after spending the night in Bethany and presumably contemplating and praying over his actions, we see here that Jesus arrives at the temple and he isn't too happy about what he sees. Okay. I'm getting feedback off of that one, I think. He arrives unseen and he begins to clean house. He, he drives out those who bought and sold in the temple. Matthew and Mark's gospel also describe how he not only drove out those who bought and sold in the temple, but how he also overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. This cleansing of the temple was actually not the first time Jesus did something like this. Early on, at the outset of his public earthly ministry, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he did the same as he does here at the end of his public earthly ministry. John's gospel records the details for us, how it was the Passover of the Jews. It was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And as the disciples witnessed, Jesus 
driving out people and animals alike, flipping over tables and tossing money all over the place, I imagine with their jaws down to the floor, like what in the world is going on here? Verse 17 tells us that they were reminded of the psalm that declares, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus had zeal for his father's house. The word zeal, it means to have fervor of spirit or a fierceness of indignation. Jesus was immensely passionate about his father's house and what should and shouldn't be happening there. And what he saw, it ate him up. Okay? John chapter 2, Jesus accused the people of turning his father's house into a house of merchandise. The word he used in the Greek is the word emporion. It's where we get the English word emporium, okay? a place where commerce takes place, buying, selling, trading. Okay? They had turned the father's house into a huge market. And what sort of merchandise were they selling? Well, they were selling oxen and sheep and doves. And why were they selling these things? Well, because those were the different types of animals that were used as offerings in worship. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, wait a second, you know, what's so bad with doing that, right? These people were providing worshipers with a service, uh, making available to them the animals that were needed for them to worship the Lord. You know, even the money changers were there to offer a service for those that had traveled from afar and didn't have the proper temple currency that was expected in their giving. You know, some Bible commentators suggest that Jesus was upset merely because these merchants were ripping off the people, charging outrageous inflated prices for the sacrificial animals, and that the money changers were likewise taking advantage of the people using a similarly inflated exchange rate. And while this is possible and very likely, in fact, nowhere in the text do we read that they were ripping the people off with their prices or with unfair exchange rates. Also worth noting, you guys, is that Jesus drove out the buyers just as he did the sellers. Okay? If he was doing this solely out of anger towards those ripping the worshipers off, why does Jesus drive them out as well? Why does he drive out those who were buying? Okay? Why wouldn't he just focus his attention upon those who were selling? Let me suggest to you that there was something else going on there that caused Jesus to respond in such a manner. You see, what happened is the Jews had made worshiping the Lord a matter of convenience. No need to bring an offering. You can just get one when you get to the temple. Okay? No need to have the proper temple currency. Just exchange what you've got with the money changers. You don't need to think of anything. We've taken care of everything for you. Just come with your money and everything will be all good. They had made the temple the Father's house into a place of convenience and consumerism, a place that yielded to the desires and the needs of the people. That is what I think caused indignation in our Lord. The house of the Lord is not meant to be a place of convenience, but a place of sacrifice, not a place for consumerism to thrive, but a place where holiness and righteousness would abound, a place where the Lord would be lifted up and have preeminence, not the people. You know, I fear for today's church and the consumerism mentality that permeates a great many of churches. And I pray that the Lord would help keep us from falling into such a temptation 
that we wouldn't allow this place to become a place of convenience, a place where we can come and really not think a thing about the Lord and just have all of our needs met, where what we want becomes more important than what the Lord wants. We need to be challenged. We need to be stirred a little from time to time. You know, we, we come and we, we want to serve you, okay? We want to bless you. And we offer coffee and cake and, you know, goodies and children's ministry service. We offer all these things for you to bless you, okay? Listen, if you come here and you don't feel a little uncomfortable from time to time, you, know, you don't get challenged from time to time or, or shaken from time to time, then, then something's wrong. We're missing the mark, okay? We want to bless you, but this should not be a place where we just kind of come and we don't ever have to think about something. And we're not, it's just so convenient. They've taken care of everything. All we got to do is show up and it's good to go. May God protect us from that type of mentality. Jesus came in here and he once again started cleaning house. Just as he did before, he drove people out, flipped over tables and seats. He wasn't messing around. This was a very big deal to Jesus. And as he's flipping over tables and running the people out of there, Jesus said, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, Jesus accused them of turning his father's house into a den of thieves. And, and a lot of people key in on that thought, that idea, and, and that's where a lot of commentators get the notion that the people were ripping off the worshipers there in the temple. But let me explain something to you that you may not realize. The phrase, den of thieves, is actually a quote from the book of Jeremiah. Okay? In Jeremiah chapter 7, the Lord instructed Jeremiah to stand in the gate of the Lord's house and to rebuke the people for their insincere ways. They were committing all sorts of great sins and then coming to the temple nonchalantly, offering their sacrifices and thinking they were delivered from their sins and could just continue doing as they pleased. That is when the Lord declared through Jeremiah, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. In this context, we see that a den of thieves isn't meant to single out people that are stealing as much as it is a description of a place where sinners felt comfortable and free from conviction or worry of judgment, a place where they thought they could get away with things. I believe Jesus is making the same connection. Sinners were coming to the temple in comfort and free from conviction, thinking that they were good as long as they went through the motions. This act of cleansing the temple was an act of judgment upon the nation of Israel. Jesus is judging the nation of Israel for their inward corruption. Okay? They had corrupted the temple and what it represented. They changed it from a place that was supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations into a den of thieves, a place of insincerity. The people were coming to the temple, but inwardly their hearts were detached. Their hearts weren't in it. They were simply going through the motions, doing what was necessary on the Sabbath so they can go and live and sin the rest of the week. And Jesus was seeking after sincere hearts that were yielded to him and his word. You see, the temple was where sacrifices were brought and offered to the Lord, but the people had forgotten what David, the sweet psalmist, so clearly explained to us in Psalm chapter 51. There in Psalm 51, David wrote the following in verses 16 and 17. He says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. 
You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. The temple became a place where people can come free from conviction or worry of judgment, a place where they could be comfortable in their sin. Of all places, the temple should not be a place where you feel comfortable in your sin, a place where you feel free from conviction. You enter into the house of God and you think, ah, I'm good to go. Yeah, I'm living in sin six days out of the week, but I'm coming to the temple, and so I'm good. Likewise, you guys, the church should not be a place where people can come and hang out and feel comfortable living in their life of sin. The people of Jeremiah's days were doing all sorts of evil things throughout the week and then coming to the temple, going through the motions, thinking that going through the motions was sufficient and that it removed any guilt for the things that they had done throughout the whole entire week. And people today treat the church similarly. They live for the world, the things of the world, from Monday through Saturday, and then on Sunday they come to church and somehow think that coming and going through the motions makes up for all that they did throughout the week. This place, you guys, is intended to be a place of prayer, a place of worship, a place where we draw close to the Lord, and we enjoy the fellowship of the body of Christ. This is not a place we should come thinking that as long as you come here and go through the motions that you're good to go. God, help us if we ever become something like that. Okay, when we enter into this place, may it be with sincerity. Okay, may it be with that we anticipate and we expect to meet with and hear from God Almighty Himself. That we would be excited, not about meeting and seeing and hearing from our friends, but meeting and seeing and hearing from our Lord. People had made the temple into a den of thieves, a place where people could be comfortable in sin. And it was wrong. We'll wrap up this section on the cleansing of the temple. Read the final two verses, 47 and 48, with me. And it says, And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. These verses read more like a summary statement of sorts as to the opposition that Jesus faced. Over the next few days leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus will spend a lot of time teaching in the temple. And as he does so, he's going to come across a lot of opposition. A lot of people are going to try and challenge him. They're going to try and challenge his authority, which we're going to see in the next section of our text this morning. But before we move on to that section, I want to draw your attention to something here at the end of the chapter. Here Jesus is cleaning out his father's house, blasting the people for the nonchalant approach to the Lord and how they need to take their walk with the Lord more seriously. And in response, the religious leaders sought opportunity to destroy Jesus, to kill him. Why? Well, Mark's gospel tells us that it was out of fear. Mark's gospel reads, And the scribes and chief priests heard it, and the it was referring to Jesus' rebuke in the temple, they heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. The religious leaders feared Jesus, but this wasn't a reverential holy fear, something that would be considered an appropriate response to Jesus' cleansing the temple and the words that he taught. No, they feared his power and his sway over the people. 
You see, they were the ones that currently enjoyed the power and the sway over the people. They were the ones in control. Jesus represented a potential loss of power and influence over the people and the religious leaders. They were not going to surrender their control so easily. They were ready to destroy, to kill Jesus if necessary, in order to keep their perceived power. This was their Messiah. This was their king, but there was no room on the throne of their hearts for Jesus. Last week, I mentioned how it is the fear of losing control, the the fear of having to surrender to Jesus that keeps people from surrendering their lives to Jesus. Listen, you guys, we don't have to fear losing whatever sense of power or control we may think we have when it comes to surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ. Surrendering our lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior is the best decision each of us could ever make. It isn't something to be feared, but rather something that brings peace with God and joy unspeakable. It is something to be celebrated. Something that surrendering to Jesus means we'll have to give up all the things that we enjoy in life. But listen, there isn't anything in this world that is more important than surrendering our lives to Jesus. Don't be afraid to give up the things of this world in order to receive the joy and peace that comes with a personal relationship through Jesus Christ. Okay? You will not regret it. Okay? Do not fear. <laughs> Surrender your lives to the Lord. Let's turn to chapter 20. We'll see in this next section, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now it happened on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? Now Luke doesn't get into the details of which day this occurred upon, but from the other gospel accounts, we come to find out that this event dealing with the religious leaders coming and questioning Jesus about his authority occurred on the day after the cleansing of the temple. And so this would be Tuesday, just a few days away from when Jesus would go to the cross for the sins of all humanity. And so here it is, Tuesday, seemingly early in the day, and we see that Jesus and his disciples find themselves once again in the temple. Now, the day prior, when Jesus went to the temple, he was driving people out, flipping over tables and causing quite the scene. This time when he arrives, the religious authorities are there waiting for him. Before Jesus can become confrontational again, driving people out, flipping over tables, the religious leaders come and they confront Jesus. Now, it is very important to note who these people are. In our text, it says that it was the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders that came to him. This group of people represent the members of the Jewish council known as the Sanhedrin. Okay, the Sanhedrin was the high court of the Jews during that day. It uh, was presided over by the high priest, and it consisted of 70 other members. Its membership consisted of the same people that are listed for us in our text here, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And so whenever you see these individuals listed out together, it's usually talking about the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, they were granted limited authority over certain religious, civil, and even some criminal matters by the Romans during this time. And part of their authority resided over the happenings there at the temple. And so we can understand their presence here in coming to Jesus, uh, questioning him in light of the events that transpired the day before with Jesus cleansing the temple. That was part of their jurisdiction, part of their responsibility. 
And they came to Jesus and they questioned him about his authority. And they basically had two questions for him. Number one, by what authority are you doing these things? And number two, who gave you the authority to do these things? Now, we aren't specifically told what these things are, okay? But I think it's safe to assume that they encompass, you know, all the events that have transpired over the last couple of days. Jesus entering into the city on the back of a donkey to the praises of the people, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, His entering into the temple and driving people out, flipping the money changers' tables over, uh, not permitting people to pass through the temple while carrying their goods. And of course, his teaching and the authority in which he spoke was something that all the people marveled at. Again, though not specifically stated, I think it's safe to assume that this is what the religious leaders are talking about when they say these things. It encompasses all that's been transpired the last couple days. They basically want to know what gave Jesus the right to do what he did and who gave him that right. And though they have the right to probe in this manner as members of the Sanhedrin, we also know that they were not truly seeking out the truth here, but rather they were trying to get Jesus to say something that they could use against them, against him. You see, the members of the Sanhedrin have been plotting for quite some time, looking for opportunities to discredit Jesus and worse yet, to destroy him. Now, they think they have Jesus in a bind here with this question. For if Jesus says that his authority comes from himself, he will come across as some crazy guy who thinks that he has the power to do whatever he wants, right? If Jesus says that his authority comes from God, then the members of the Sanhedrin would immediately accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Either way, they think they've got him. No matter how he answers, they'll be able to bring some sort of accusation against him. You know, as we consider the actions of the members of the Sanhedrin, I see here a warning for us, something that we need to make sure that we avoid. The Sanhedrin, they came to Jesus asking him questions about his authority, but they really didn't want to know the truth about Jesus' authority. Not recognizing the authority of Jesus leads to all sorts of problems in life, okay? We must, we must acknowledge and submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples before commissioning them to go out into the world and spread his gospel message that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus has authority over everything. Ultimately, every single person that walks this earth or has walked this earth will one day bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul describes how God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody, everybody will one day submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, but... Only those that do so on this side of eternity, while they have the breath of life within them, will enter into heaven and reside with him forever. Those that fail to acknowledge and submit to his authority on this side of eternity will do so, and they will do so in his presence, but will then be sent to a place of darkness and destruction where they will spend eternity separated from God in hell. And my hope and my prayer is that everyone here today 
has made that choice, that we have decided for ourselves to acknowledge and submit to Christ's authority while we still can, and that we are all destined to spend eternity in the presence of the Lord. Every knee will bow. Every one of us, you guys, sooner or later, you will bow the knee. But the importance is that we do so now. Back to our text. Let's see how Jesus responded to this probing from the religious leaders. Read with me verses 3 and 4. It says, But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Jesus, as he often did, responded to the questioning from the religious leaders with a question of his own. And according to Matthew's parallel account of this event, Jesus actually agreed to answer their questioning about his authority if they would answer him a question about John the Baptist. Now, recall that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He was sent in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord and to set people's hearts upon the Lord and to exhort people towards repentance. Mark uh, recorded Details about John the Baptist's ministry. It was an incredibly effective ministry prior to Jesus entering into the public eye and beginning his own ministry. Mark says how John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And so John had a huge impact upon a great many people throughout the land. Many went out to see him. They were baptized by him. They confessed their sins before him. He was regarded as a man of God and a prophet of the Lord. Jesus' question of whether the baptism of John was from heaven or from men really is the same question the religious authorities were asking about him. Jesus agrees to answer their question about his authority if they will answer his question about John the Baptist's authority. Let's see how they responded. Look at verses 5 through 7. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why, did, did, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it was from. We'll stop right there. Verse 5 describes the group as gathering together and reasoning among themselves about the best way to answer Jesus' question. Evidently, honestly answering was something that was debatable to them. They're like, do we want to tell the truth here or not tell the truth? You know, uh, it was optional for them. As they talked among themselves, this is what they came to. If we say John the Baptist was from heaven, he will then ask why we didn't believe him. You see, the assumption would be that these men as the religious leaders and representatives of the Lord to the Jewish people, that they would certainly go along with something that had come from the Lord in heaven. And since they didn't go along with John the Baptist and his ministry, that would mean, or that would make them look bad in front of the people. They would look like poor representatives of the Lord to the Jewish people. Not only that, but then they would have to face the realization that John the Baptist testified of Christ and of his authority. 
John said of Jesus, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In the Apostle John's gospel, he writes concerning how John the Baptist spoke of Jesus, declaring, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So if they say that John the Baptist was from heaven, well, then they'll have to explain why they didn't believe his testimony concerning Jesus Christ. And that would be a big problem for them. And so they can't say, from heaven. And if they say that John the Baptist's ministry is from men, and that he was basically a fake, a phony, okay, the people will be upset with them because the people all counted John as being a prophet sent by God. Although they didn't believe in the ministry of John the Baptist, they were afraid to let that be known because they didn't want it to impact the influence they had over the people. They feared that if they said something negative about John the Baptist in his ministry, that the people may rise up and actually stone them. And so the only recourse they could come up with was to lie and to say, we don't know where it was from. Okay? Or as the King James Version states, I like it in the King James, it says they could not tell whence it was. They could not tell. They couldn't tell, not because they hadn't made a decision, but because answering either way would hinder their influential relationship over the people. You know, I did a word study on the word know, and it says, we do not know. Okay? It literally means to see, to either perceive with the eyes or by any of the senses, most notably the mind, to see with the mind, to know. The chief priests and the elders rightly described their assessment. They could not see. They could not perceive with their mind. They were blind. They were blind to the ministry of John the Baptist, just as they were blind to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And in their reasoning, the chief priests really do show their true colors and their biggest problem. The chief priests and the elders feared the people instead of fearing God. They didn't want to look like poor representatives in front of the people, and they didn't want to say anything that would get the people mad and potentially have them churn on them. They cared more about what the people thought and how they would respond than what the Lord thought and how he would respond. Somewhere along the road, they had exchanged the fear of the Lord with the fear of man, and it was to their ruin. And listen, church family, it will be to our ruin as well. If we exchange the fear of the Lord for the fear of man, it will ruin us just as it ruined them. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 states, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. If we make our life our, or, or our priority about just pleasing people, we will be miserable, okay? It is an impossible task. Instead of thinking what would please the people, we need to ask ourselves what would please the Lord? We need to fear the Lord, not man. The psalmist declares, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want or lack to those who fear him. Psalm 34, verse 9. We need to fear the Lord, not man. To fear the Lord it, it, it simply means that we have a healthy respect and adoration and awe of his majesty and his might. But it also means that we understand his holiness and his righteous judgments. 
No, practically speaking, it means that we make our goal to please God. It means that we are more concerned with what God thinks is right and what we should do than we are with what other people think. It means that we know that in the end we will answer to God and we have a great confidence that our identity and worth is found in Him and not in what others think of us. I hope that we would all have a healthy fear of the Lord in our lives. Let's look at our last verse. We'll wrap this all up. Take a look at verse 8, Jesus' response to the religious leaders. Verse 8, it says, And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. By not answering, these religious leaders showed that they really had rejected John and Jesus as God's messengers. And this, of course, was not something new for the leaders of the nation of Israel. Throughout most of their history, most leaders of Israel repeatedly rejected God's messengers. That's the story we read throughout all the Old Testament. Uh, the prophets of the Lord were sent out, and the people rejected them. And since the chief priests and the elders would not answer his question, he did not answer theirs. I find a certain spiritual principle here that I think is worth noting. The religious leaders came asking questions of Jesus and seeking answers, but they had already been given the truth to these answers about him, who he was, okay, and where his authority came from through the ministry and the testimony of John the Baptist. And if they weren't going to receive the truth from John the Baptist, why would he give them further truth? When we disobey truth, we already know God will not reveal to us new truth. It's a principle of faithfulness. We must be faithful to what has been given to us before we are entrusted with more. Because these religious leaders were not obedient to the truth already revealed to them, Jesus is not going to give them more. You know, I, I think sometimes people come to God and they have all sorts of questions, okay? And, and that's okay. God's not afraid about, of our questions, okay? God is faithful to reveal what is needed. Right? But before He reveals more answers... He wants us to be obedient to what He has already revealed to us. Okay? Some people, you know, they have all these questions. What about this? What about this? What about this? Well, here's the simplicity of the gospel. What, what have you done with that? Well, I'm not sure I want to, you know, receive that truth yet because I want to know all the answers to everything else. That's not how it works. You need to be faithful to the truth that's been given to you, the knowledge that's been given to you. Be faithful to that, and then God will show you more. Be faithful with the truth that's been given to you, and then you'll find that God will be faithful to reveal more. We need to be faithful to the knowledge God has revealed to us before we can expect Him to reveal further knowledge. It's a spiritual principle that we must follow. And because these religious leaders did not obey the knowledge already revealed to them, they were not given more. May we be faithful to the word God has revealed to us. May we be faithful to respond to the knowledge that God has given to us through his word. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us uh, your word. Lord, that we can uh, build our lives upon it. Lord, that we can uh, trust you and the promises that we have within scripture. And Lord, how you reveal yourself to us through your word. And Lord, I pray and that we would hear you, Lord, and that we would walk with you, Lord, that we would allow your spirit to lead and guide us. I pray, Lord, that if there's any here that have not surrendered their lives to you, that today would be the day that they do so. 
Lord, we know that every knee will bow one day, Lord, but it's only those who bow their knee now, who confess you as Lord and Savior now, that will enter into eternity with you in heaven. And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir in the hearts of those um, who have need to make that uh, decision, Lord, and that they would do so today. Lord, for those that have already made that decision, I pray that they would continue to walk with you in sincerity, Lord. They wouldn't allow um, their walk with you to become just um, a matter of convenience. But Lord, they'd be willing to sacrifice. They'd be willing uh, to surrender all to you. And Lord, as we surrender all to you, Lord, we are confident that what we give up uh, will pale in comparison to what we gain in our personal relationship with you. And so, Lord, stir in our hearts. Lord, if there's any that just need to confess uh, that they've allowed themselves to stray, Lord, I pray that the, your grace would just meet them where they're at. And Lord, that you'd minister to their hearts and that you would uh, just lift them up and uh, draw them close to you. We thank you for your word this morning. And we ask uh, your continued blessings upon uh, the rest of our day and the rest of our week, Lord, that we would continue to meditate upon your word, hear it, and allow it to impact us, allow it to mold and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his holy and precious name. Amen.